Welcome to the 247th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And today, we have breaking news! Technically, it'll have broken yesterday, but several big players in the smart home industry have gotten together to create a new standard, Connected Home over IP. Plus, we're going to talk about a developer-created device for crypto micropayments, Weaknesses in IoT digital certificates, an update on LifeX, Wise, and a review of Samsung SmartThings Wi-Fi. Plus, we'll be talking about security in the smart home as we answer a listener question. Our guest this week is going to be Lee Reber, who is the COO of Oxygen Forensics and a former police officer. He's going to be talking about what we can reasonably expect law enforcement to get off of our smart devices. It's going to be an exciting show, so stay tuned. But first, a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Serent. Building a great connected product is tough. Although it may work well in your lab or a field trial, once it's in the wild, wild west of real customer environments, it gets a lot more complicated. To build a product that works well in the real world, you should check out Serent. Their solutions make it easier to get your products connected and keep them connected. Go to Sirit.com to learn more about their solutions. That's C-I-R-R-E-N-T.com. Okay, Kevin. Big news. Huge news. We're recording this Wednesday morning, and Wednesday morning, news broke that Google, Apple, and Amazon are working under the Zigbee Alliance to create a new smart home standard called Connected Home Over IP. This is a new working group. Their goal is to make it easier for devices in the home to talk to one another and specifically to make them work better with the existing hubs and voice infrastructure that we've kind of already decided seem to be the way we're getting our smart devices to work. It's funny you said hubs because when I first saw the news and saw that these companies were working under the Zigbee Alliance, I'm like, oh, does that mean Apple will have a Zigbee radio in some hub device or whatever, and Google, because Amazon already does. But I don't think that's what this means. That is not what this means. They actually, in an FAQ, talk about you could use different radios. But let's give you the who, what, when, where, whys. So the who's We talked about the three big parties, which are the three main players in the smart home industry. But there are also several other companies working on this. Yes, uh, board member companies on the Zigbee lines, including IKEA, Legrand, NXP Semiconductor, Residio, Samsung SmartThings, Schneider Electric, Signify, which uh, is the company behind Philips Hue Lighting now, Silicon Labs, Sanfi, and Woolian. Yikes, that is everybody, Yeah, which is pretty cool. So that's the who. The what is an IP-based protocol that is going to work with what looks like the hub with the voice assistant hubs. So it's going to be device with a hub attached kind of model. And it is going to probably be IP and mesh-based, I'm guessing. It's definitely IP-based because that's what they're focusing on here. But we're probably also going to see mesh and something with low power 
We're also probably going to see something that will run on the hub that is going to be higher powered. So that is the what, and it's going to allow all these devices to talk to one another, and it's going to have the ability to let a hub and other devices understand the rules associated with each individual smart home product. So what I mean here is like a light bulb will have a set of parameters that say, I am a light bulb. I can turn on, I can turn off, I'm dimmable, I can also do colors. These are the things I typically talk to and what I do. So right now, Amazon, if you're a developer and you're building a light bulb, you have to build that for Madam A, which is what we call Amazon's digital assistant. You have to build that specifically for HomeKit and you have to build that specifically for Google's home stuff. So this sort of connected home over IP would actually let you build that once and it presumably would work for everyone. That's the interesting part, working for everyone, because on the connected home over IP site in the frequently asked questions, it says, if the working group succeeds with this goal, customers can be confident their device of choice will work in their home and they'll be able to set it up and control it with their preferred system. Meaning maybe we see fewer devices that have to be built, say, for Google or for If this is certified, my assumption is if you're CHIP certified. (laughs) Oh, chip. (laughs) I just got that. Oh, you just got that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, you guys. You're the chip chip geek. Come on. All right. Now I'm the double chip geek. Okay. So if it's chip certified, it would presumably work with any other chip certified product. What about HomeKit and its unique security approach? So a chip product may not work with an existing HomeKit product. Apple presumably will start putting out HomePods or other devices that work with chip. So you're not going to see chip stuff work with your works with Google products, for example, necessarily. You may, but there's no promise. There's no guarantee on that. So what we're talking about is an entirely new ecosystem, but it's you build once for chip and hopefully you'll talk to so many things. It won't matter. But yes, this does mean and this is probably the what or the why. I don't know. I've lost my W's. It's the what and the why. (laughs) This probably means that we're all going to have to buy new gear. They expect the first version of this to be available to talk about in late 2020. So probably no new products until 2021, I presume. Yeah. And I would say even that's probably a bit of a stretch. Correct. End of 2021. So next holiday, you're still safe. But the holiday after that, we're probably all going to be asking for new products. Yay. So the why. (laughs) Why is this happening? I think there's a couple reasons. We've actually been covering smart home standards for, Kevin, it's not decades yet, but since like 2013. Mm -hmm. So by the time this is out, we will have almost been doing it for a decade. And a lot of the pieces were there. The device schema is what they call it in the Open Connectivity Foundation. They have something called IOTivity that was backed by Intel. That superseded the all-join efforts, which were the original ones backed by Qualcomm. And the why now is that we've basically come up with a sense that we want to have our devices controlled by some sort of hub that is probably voice-enabled or has a digital assistant component. And so what you're thinking is you need something for the little edge things to say, this is what I am and what I do and who I can talk to. And... You're going to have a hub that controls all that and creates routines around that and all of that fun stuff. So we know what that smart home model actually looks like. We also are in the middle of kind of a crisis of security and privacy. 
And having some sort of standard here makes it easier to start setting rules around security and privacy within that standard that everyone will have to follow. This is good. Yes. The downside is, yes, we're all going to be building new products. And I don't know if I love this model because it feels very tied to a voice assistant. It feels very tied to a hub. And there are good reasons to do that. But they're also the hub is going to act as a control point, And that's going to be where the monetization happens. And right now, the people who own the hubs are the existing players. So it's not the end of innovation in this space. But it's probably coming to the end of innovation where, like in building an architecture for the smart home. So the common language, only because we this is all being done through the Zigbee Alliance, would be dot dot, I presume. Yes. Well, no. We don't know. <laughs> the answer is we don't know. Dot dot is how we got the thread protocol, which Google and Samsung and a bunch of people came up with back in 2013. This was a new radio protocol that allowed devices to talk to each other in a mesh network over low power, and it was IP-based. And when it was originally Nest that created this, they were like, we need something new for the smart home. So they did this, and then nobody really used it. So they worked with the Zigbee Alliance to create Dot Dot, which allowed Thread and Zigbee to kind of both work on the same radio, because they're both based on the same radio. We hadn't seen a lot from Dot Dot, so this is kind of like a big, I guess, a big surprise party for... <laughs> Coming out party. For everybody who's been watching all of this, but it's not clear, though, if we're, they're going to use Dot Dot, if they're going to use Weave, if they're going to use Thread. Google says it's contributing these. Zigbee Alliance is mentioning that Dot Dot's data models are going to be in here. They also talk about Apple's HomeKit being in there. So we really don't know What's going to be taken from each of these? That's the next several months that these guys are going to be working on this. Right. And we probably won't know that, as, as you said, until late 2020 when the draft spec is available. I mean, trust me on this. There was a lot of wrangling to get this thing together. And there's going to be even more wrangling to figure out what's going to be involved. Definitely, because they're talking about a preliminary reference open source implementation in late 2020 and open source and Apple Generally, I don't hear those two together. Yeah. This kind of explains why just actually last week, IKEA joined the Zigbee Alliance. And we were all like, huh, that's weird. But mm -hmm. now it makes sense. Apple had joined the Thread board last year. And we were all like, what? Apple? Thread? Huh. Now I have a sense that they probably were getting them kind of cozy enough to get them to do something like this. But let's talk about what we'd like to see. What I think is important to enshrine in an interoperable and open protocol and what maybe could be left to chance. You want to do it, Kevin? So I think a large part of it is what you said before, just having all devices be able to communicate to all other devices what its capabilities are, how to access those capabilities, etc., regardless of brand. That's the key and regardless of hub platform. So from a consumer standpoint, instead of a fragmented choice of devices that you might want to add to your home, like because they only work with a certain uh, ecosystem, that goes away. And that's, that's huge. That also hopefully could reduce costs of these devices because product makers don't have to make two or three different versions of a product, like a Zigbee bulb and a Wi-Fi bulb, for example, um, or a home kit and a non home kit device. So that's, that's big. 
And you mentioned with, with developers as well. I mean, make it work once and that's it. Your product is good. And they will actually. So there's nothing for Z-Wave in this, but both the Zigbee Alliance and the Bluetooth Special Interest Group have shown thread over Bluetooth, thread over Zigbee. So you can, and they mentioned this in the connected home over IP question FAQs, they talk about being able to use Bluetooth. So you might actually still use a Bluetooth device and still need to make a Zigbee powered device, or maybe just pick one. But yes, they will be interoperable. But what I'm thinking is, how far do we want to take this? For example, Amazon has built their simple sign-on, simple setup option, which basically, if you buy something from Amazon, you can actually bring it into your network and it will work all on its own. It will set up and onboard with Wi-Fi on its own, which is really helpful because onboarding is such a pain. Mm -hmm. Google is actually building something similar, but they don't have it completely ready yet. And they don't have it as automated as Amazon has theirs. And then Apple with HomeKit has their QR code for a simple sign-on, right? It's getting your device on the network. Mm -hmm. So my hunch is this is also going to deal with things like getting devices on a home network. And to that end, although the primary focus of the project is to make devices compatible with uh, Madam A, Siri, Google Assistant, and others, they also say... This may include a proposed standard for lifecycle events such as provisioning, onboarding, removal, error recovery, and software updates. So they're thinking ahead to where you're going, which is awesome. Yes. And the removal is key because as we always discuss, it is such a pain to get things off of a hub. I mean, I still have devices from my old house showing up on my Amazon device they don't exist anymore. And I manually removed them. I finally went and de-authenticated all the skills. And I think that may have worked, but I'm not 100% sure. And then the software updates, that's less interesting. What I don't see here is anything really about security and data management. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's interesting because all of these companies, when you work with their hubs, you're signing up for different security parameters and different data management practices. So Apple, for example, wants you to get a device online without having to install the dedicated device app, for example. And I don't know if that's something that would be part of any standard, any chip standard. Like you don't have to, you can get this working with the hubs without having to download a special app. Most companies would be kind of unhappy about that. There's questions around that. And then there's also things like if you have a device that works with Madam A, for example, you have to share state data. And right now, companies negotiate with Amazon for sharing different levels of sharing of state data, for example. Amazon has the power to say, I want to know all of the state data all of the time on any device that talks to me, even if you're not asking it via Madam A. Some companies negotiate, and if they're in a good position, they can negotiate to keep that secret from Amazon. So those are all things that I'm like, huh, how far will this go? (laughs) We will see. It's going to be a while to find out, but we will see. Yeah. So for everybody, big questions. Mostly we don't know the answers. We do know that if you're a developer, this is good news. If you're a user, this is good news, but you're probably going to have to buy new stuff in the next probably, let's say, two to three year time frame. So maybe you don't want to invest in something big now. Your existing stuff will continue to work for a while. So don't stress out. 
And yeah, I guess that's most of the news that we know and most of the questions that we're asking. Okay, next up, let's talk about crypto micro payments. That's a lot of little tiny <laughs> thing. <laughs> that's a lot. What is this, Kevin? This is interesting. This is a unique little project that was created by Christian Oosting. He is a software developer and using IOTA, which is a cryptocurrency that was specifically developed for IoT devices. He has basically taken a little ESP board, which we've talked about those little- The Espressif ESP32. Yes. It's That's everybody's correct. favorite board. It also yes. was, was recently hacked and yeah, is that's not what we talked fixable. about. <laughs> but yes, go right. on. Tell me so, about your tell me about your crypto <laughs> micropayments platform built on a hacked. So <laughs> he has created what he calls Espiota, which is a combination of Espressive and IOTA, and very simply has got it working as a proof of concept. So that as an example, and I love this example actually, because I never, I never understood what IOTA could be used for, cryptocurrency for IOT. But he said, you could use this device to activate an air conditioner for say 10 IOTA coins a day, maybe for a hotel or for a rental property or who knows what. You pay 10 IOTA and the device activates the air conditioning for 24 hours, for example. I was thinking it'd be great to like uh, charge my kids for Wi-Fi, but I don't think they're going to like that. So um, he even took his device and connected it to a little robotic car, a little smart car kind of thing, and sending IOTA currency to it. He's got it configured that the car will actually turn on for X amount of time, whatever he's configured. So I thought it was really, really unique of a project because it's the first implementation or proof of concept of using cryptocurrency with IoT that I have seen. I'm sure there's been others, but this one crossed my radar. Awesome. And you can build it yourself. Yay. Mm -hmm. Okay. In other news, maybe less exciting news, we have, oh, weaknesses in IoT digital certificates. Basically, a certificate management company called Key Factor, they studied a bunch of digital certificates. 75 million certificates. <laughs> 75 million certificates. And they found that one in every 172 certificates was crackable because of insecure random number generation. So let's hit pause for a moment to explain what the heck we're talking about. This is IoT devices, all connected devices. They have a security effort that relies on them basically saying, I'm this random number. And then you call out to a certificate and the certificate says, oh, you are that random number. You're legit. And then you're like, yeah. And then they decide they're all secure and they share data. What they found is that it's actually pretty easy to game that system. And by pretty easy, I mean that a computer, a supercomputer working pretty hard can figure it out. They were able to crack some Azure certificates for $3,000 of computing power over a period of a day. So easy is very relative. <laughs> yes. But they're saying this is important because IoT devices, they typically don't generate enough random numbers because they're lack computing power. And I would argue that this is not entirely and always the case, but it is the case sometimes. The key factor guys suggest that instead of the device developing their own random number, that they actually call out to other entities to figure this out. That would allow for a more random numbers being used to create the key. Yes. My challenge here is that just moves your security weakness to just a different point in the process. 
But, you know, sure. A lot of companies that I've talked to recently are doing security slightly differently. They're putting secure enclaves on chips where they store these numbers. They're putting random number generation on the chip itself, even at low power. There's a bunch of companies that can do this. And I'm even talking to companies who are developing chips that are built randomly. Now, this is for super, super high end and things that need to be super secure, not like a light bulb. Think more like a credit card. But they're building chips with the actual physical infrastructure of the chip is random. And that actually is part of the key generation, which is kind of cool. So Mm -hmm. the point here is IoT devices need to have high quality random number generation capabilities. The jury is still out on how we're going to get to that. There's a bunch of different options. And my hunch is we're going to see a bunch of different ways to do this based on what the device is used for. Because obviously, a light bulb does not need to be quite as secure as a credit card. Right. So that's that story. Nothing to worry about. Nothing too pressing to worry about. Yeah. This is more just so you understand how this world is working, basically. This is more just like, eh, here's a fun story that lets us talk about security and other fun stuff. So let's move on to some quick news bits. One, why sensors now work with Madam A. Yay. Yay. This is great because I actually feel like I get frustrated because there's not a lot of really good sensors that work with the smart home hubs. So yay. Also, I flagged this because it's a little old now, but I got an email from the folks at LifeX and our podcast inspired them to do some cold weather testing because our listeners, that's you guys, kept asking us questions about which light bulbs were safe for outdoor use. So LifeX wants us to know that they did the testing and they have achieved IP65 certification for its BR30 and BR30 plus range of smart lights. And they're guaranteed for operation down to negative 30 Celsius. That's crazy. They also did a test at negative 40 degrees Celsius, which basically means after several hours at 40 degrees Celsius, they were still able to turn on. And for those of you guys who are wondering, negative 40 Celsius is negative 40 Fahrenheit, although negative 30 Celsius is negative 22. So basically, these guys can get pretty cold. They also, just in case you're wondering, can go as high as 40 degrees Celsius, which is 104 degrees Fahrenheit, which living in Texas, that may not be... It might not be enough. It might not be enough. But yay! That's exciting. So when you are looking at outdoor lighting, know that LifeX has your back. I think it's pretty cool. Yes. Yes. And you're right. It's thanks to the listeners because we had some in some very cold regions of the country asking about what lights they could use in that cold weather. And we were kind of coming up empty, but thank you, LifeX, for listening and making a change. Or just doing the tests. I don't think they actually changed anything. (laughs) That's a good point. That's a good point. They did the testing so you guys don't have to. All right. And Kevin, you reviewed a device. Do you want to talk about Samsung's SmartThings Wi-Fi Hub Bonanza package thing? (laughs) Yes. Yes. As I noted maybe two weeks ago, both on the blog and the podcast, that I was going to replace my Wink device. And was thinking about using a Samsung SmartThings Link USB stick just to try Samsung again for a little while. The Samsung folks kind of thought, hey, we can help you out with that. So they sent a review unit of the 
Samsung SmartThings Wi-Fi, which is a three-pack of mesh networking gear. I set it up, and the setup was actually, I thought, easier than the Google Wi-Fi setup that I did two years ago. I'm impressed. And just to be fair, even though it's a three-pack of the Wi-Fi units, I only set up two because I had two Google Wi-Fi units in the house. And that's how I did my testing, just to keep it comparable. I am definitely getting faster speeds everywhere in the house as compared to Google Wi-Fi. I think part of that is due to the slightly different networking hardware. And I think another part of that is because they have Plume integration. So Plume's, we'll call it AI, um, network shaping, however you want to call it, their service, which is integrated into these units, I think is helping provide better coverage and speeds. So Oh, yeah. And the plume gets better over time. Exactly. And just to set in perspective, I have a one gig fiber to the home home broadband connection. <laughs> and in my worst spot with Google Wi-Fi, I could maybe get about 70 to 75 megabits per second down. Now in that exact same spot with the Samsung, I'm getting well over 100. And in all the other spots, I'm getting two, three, 400 megabits per second over Wi-Fi, which is really awesome. So that's good. The one thing I'm not too keen on, I love the Plume app and obviously what it brings to this hardware. Even though it's quote-unquote integrated into the system, you still have to have both the Samsung SmartThings app to set up everything. And then most of your device, I'm sorry, most of your network management is done in the Plume app. And when you click Plume in the Samsung app, it jarringly takes you out of the Samsung app and opens the Plume app. And I just wish the apps themselves were integrated. Having said that, the Plume app is really nice. That's where all of the advanced networking features are, uh, such as your guest network, the functionality to have a whole home ad blocker or a per device ad blocker, which is cool, guest networks, their IoT malware threat protection. I have it enabled, but I only set up the Wi-Fi so far. I have not yet set up the Samsung SmartThings hub aspect of this because these double as a hub. So that's going to be a follow-up review. Overall, it's expensive, $279 for this setup. But setup, I'm telling you, within 10 minutes, I had both units set up, speeds were faster, and I'm, I'm very impressed so far. Woohoo! I am excited. And this is a good time to hint at something we're going to be doing for our next week's podcast. We were going to do a big Q&A thing, but then we decided instead of doing a big multiple Q&A, we were going to answer one big question from you guys. That we get all the time. <laughs> all the time. And it's, yeah. should I put my IoT devices on a guest network? I've done this before, but Kevin and I are both doing this. We're both doing it on an individual device basis. And we're going to tell you exactly what happens for cameras, for thermostats, for whatever. So we're going to explain exactly the trade-offs of all of this. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be next week and you're going to love it. Or if you're not really interested in this, you could just skip the whole episode. Although you might miss me singing like holiday songs. Who knows? That might be an incentive, actually. All right. I think now it's time to go to the IoT Podcast Hotline, which is brought to you by Afero. With the fifth largest IoT patent portfolio in the world, Afero provides a proven IoT platform that doesn't risk your brand. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market and 10x higher activation rates. Learn more at afero.io. All right. The IoT Podcast Hotline is here for you. And if you call us, you will be entered to win a set of Philips Hue light bulbs for the December contest. 
And to call us, all you have to do is dial 512-623-7424 and leave us your question or just say, I'd like to be entered into the contest. Although surely you have a question. This week's question is from Brent, and it's about the trade-offs between security and convenience. Let's hear it. Hi, this is Brent from Utah. I noticed that you talk about a lot about security, and it always seems to correspond or conflict with convenience. Where is that trade-off? Is there something specific that we need to be pushing companies towards? I think security is a massive issue a massive problem, but I continue to use my devices. So where does that uh, line stand? Thanks. Okay, Brent, this is fun. (laughs) It's something we all have to deal with. Yep, We do. And actually, it's something I wrote about this week. So here's what happens when you have poor security. Not only do the device manufacturers risk getting hacked, like their cloud or their devices, but also if you as an individual have poor security policies, you risk getting hacked and letting your devices get hacked. A perfect example of this is this week's ring kerfuffle. Allega- I don't even know what this is. It's not. I wouldn't say it's a hack. <laughs> it's not a hack. Yeah. What's happened is people who use the same password in lots of places had their passwords and emails hacked. And then the person who had those decided to log into people's Ring accounts. Basically, this happened earlier this year with Nest. The reason this happens with the big brands is because more people have them. You're more likely to be able to find a random password and email on this particular service, right? So someone had gone in, found a bunch of Ring accounts, used the password and emails, and started talking to kids, and then started recording it for a Twitch podcast. I don't know what to call those things. Live stream. Live stream. So this was pretty horrific. People are up in arms. People are sad. The news is all over it, saying that Ring is hacked. I would say, no, your password has been hacked. But there is actually something Ring could do about this, and that is multi-factor authentication, which they do offer. And the pressure is now among people in the know that Ring should make multi-factor authentication just Required. Required. Thank you. I was like, what is the word I'm looking for? (laughs) Required for a device like an in-home camera. And I kind of, I wrote about this this week. Coming in January, California has a new law called SB 327. And it says that device makers have to take reasonable security measures to protect their devices. And part of the reasonable security measures, as part of looking at that, they're looking at where the device is and what kind of data it can collect. I would argue that having a two-way audio connection and a video stream into your home, that's pretty precious data. And it probably requires higher level of security. So what might happen is camera companies will have to start requiring multi-factor authentication, which is good and bad. Well, yeah, it depends on how they implement it. And this gets to Brent's question. Convenience versus the security. I mean, I look at it as how I implement security, not just on my home network, but on my my devices. I use a Chromebook, for example. So if somebody were to get my Google account, they could log into that Chromebook or just log into my Google account and get all the passwords and all the data that I have stored with Google. So I have my Google account set up with two-factor authentication. Typically, I use either an authenticator app or on the Chromebook, you can't get into the Chromebook without a UB key, a USB stick that basically is the second factor for authentication. Is it convenient? Not at all, Brett. 
Is it something that I don't mind doing? Yeah, because my data is just too valuable, quite honestly, to me. And it's, obviously, this is a personal choice here. I agree with Stacy on the whole cameras and speakers aspect, or I guess I should say microphones, because it doesn't get more personal than that, right? So again, it depends on the implementation. Our smartphones today, most of them have some type of face unlock or face ID. iPhones have them, Android phones have them. That would be a very simple way to do this. And it's not that inconvenient. We're using it hundreds of times a day now. So that would be fine. But some other alternatives such as, I don't know, authenticator apps or who knows what else. It's hard to I don't think that's the way to go. Yeah. It's hard to stick a USB key into a a phone or (laughs) a a device. But yeah, fingerprint or face ID gives you multi-factor that is actually way more convenient than because you're already trying to log in from that device anyway. Exactly. Uh, So this is my thinking. I'd love to hear other ideas from people on making security more convenient. I will say that I think with laws requiring security, now we're moving past the stage where, hey, we have decent security becomes the selling point. And maybe since everyone will have to have decent security, then it becomes, hey, our security is less painful to use yet still effective becomes the new thing people will compete on. Here's hoping. All right. That concludes this part of the podcast. But if you would like to hear more about some of this news, please sign up for my newsletter at stacyonaiot.com. And you'll also get news that we don't talk about in the podcast. It's super fun. And now it's time for our guest, Lee Reiber, COO of Oxygen Forensics, who is going to be talking to us about what data and how law enforcement's gets data off of our smart devices. It's pretty eye-opening. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Lee Reber, who is the COO of Oxygen Forensics. Hi, Lee. How are you today? I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me on the uh, podcast. Oh, I am super excited because this is a topic near and dear to my heart, which is what can law enforcement and I guess other government agencies determine about us from our connected devices? Yikes. But before we get into that, let's quickly talk about your job. What is Oxygen Forensics and what do you do? Uh, I am the chief operating officer. I, I have a background in law enforcement as well as in the software side of it, but our company what we really do is we focus on the creation of software that helps to extract data from mobile devices, from cloud services, drones. And, and so obviously assisting law enforcement, and you just have to think about it, how many phones do you have in your pocket? That's great. But now you start thinking about what's connected, you know, this internet of things, and you start really wondering and going, uh, everything is connected. So we really started focusing on that as well, because we were finding a lot of cases that were involving either wearables or some sort of device within the home. Okay, let's go back in time a little bit. And the Amazon Echo, for example, launched in 2014, we started seeing people use wearables all the way back in like 2011, I think is when I got my first Fitbit. The history of this, we've been doing this for about 10 years. Is that fair? This sort of extraction from electronic devices outside of phones? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we started the company in 2000, but when we start thinking about, say, the wearables back in the day of a Fitbit, it's very limited metadata. You know, when you might have really just kind of 
these are how many steps or, and we really hadn't even progressed into say heartbeat or any type of, uh, you know, that type of monitoring, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, it's been around a, a lot longer than people think. All the way back in 2000, I know that I was using my phone to check in places. So, you know, not like I'm, I'm committing any crimes while there, but still, you know, worth thinking about. Exactly. So let's start with something that's very much in the news today, which is the ring doorbell. Just because, again, we're seeing the police departments become an extension of Ring's marketing arm in a lot of ways and bringing these two communities to help create safer communities. And I think we're probably, as we go through this topic, we're going to probably talk about like this fine line between, oh, this is very helpful and beneficial for everyone. We all want safer streets. And oh my gosh, we could be using this for surveillance that is maybe illegal or that sort of thing. So from your perspective, let's talk about what Ring is doing right and how you kind of view a device like a video doorbell. And I think the video doorbell, if we just go back in really in time and thinking about, I mean, even when I was on the law enforcement side of it and, and today, you know, you remember, hey, make sure you cover your laptop camera, right? Everyone wanted to cover their laptop camera. And really, why am I going to do that? Well, because it's really an IP camera. It's attached to the internet. People can have access to that data. So you started some of the companies, obviously, you know, thinking about, huh, I wonder if we can actually use these for good. How can I go in and I take a camera, I can attach these to the internet, have someone available to, oh, the doorbell rings, I now have somebody at my door, be able to use that for the consumer. So obviously, that's a great benefit for people. You know, they're able, even if they're not home, they're able to monitor that. So it's, it's a great security feature for law enforcement. You're exactly right. They just kind of set up these little neighborhoods and, and Ring has done a good job that allows people with the Ring and with the system, not necessarily just the doorbell, you know, be able to be connected. So, hey, someone's been in your area, look for these people. And I mean, now you have a video of, of the individuals. And now when law enforcement they might be responding to a scene, they're able to, you know, one of the questions, do you have any type of do the ring doorbell? Do you have any type of surveillance? People can take them right into their homes and be able to show that, you know, the suspect directly. I mean, hey, now I can put that into the news. You know, obviously these types of devices, they've been around a long time. Now they've become commercialized. Sure. And they're everywhere. And I can see, you know, you could be like, oh, that person took off and drove, turned left at the corner. That's great information. Now, let me ask you, are there enough safeguards in place? Right now, I know if a police officer wants access to my ring camera data, for example, I either give it to them because it's my case they're working on, or they might go to me because my neighbor has a case and they'd have a case number and they'd have to give me that and then I'd send them my data. Now, is that enough protection or should we have more? That's never really enough. Now, we have to think about really any type of device, whether it be a mobile device, whether it be, you know, a simple IoT device like a Google Home or any type of Amazon device. You have to think the data is stored somewhere. The data is controlled by you, the consumer, right, with a login and a password. But you really have to start thinking about that data and, and how you access it. Because if it's a simple login, as in username and password, it's relatively easy. I mean, if you think about, say, just social engineering or you think about all of your passwords that you use or your usernames to typically an email address and, you know, a common password, hopefully not. But if I have that, I can access your data anywhere. And so you have to start thinking about the safeguards that have been built in there, two-factor authentication, multi-factor authentication, you know, being able to use something, you know, something you are, something you know, that only you know something that you have, something like biometrics to really safeguard that information. Now, a lot of the companies, they really, really work on their security because obviously if there's a breach or if people access that without, say, those username and password that someone a user holds, but they actually hack into that cloud, 
if they're able to retrieve that data in, say, a readable format, that's really bad security on the company side. So I think the companies are doing a good job saying securing that information, but you always have to think it's the weakest link, right? And that's that person who's sitting behind the keyboard. True. I was thinking less the security side and more protection against maybe law enforcement overreach in some of these cases. And I'm thinking of things like maybe how long they get to keep data, or maybe it's things like applying facial recognition. And I am very interested because I do believe this is very powerful at stopping a crime. Like if my child were kidnapped, I'd want all of the data from everybody in my neighborhood sucked up and analyzed to hopefully get my child back, right? Right. We are living in an era where I also don't want my neighbors to get swooped up in like some sort of silly drug bust or maybe an immigration raid. So how do we balance those two things? And I know that's a tough issue. It's not. To me, it's just don't do bad things, right? If we take it at just a small level of as law enforcement, right? Law enforcement are investigating crimes. Now, do we have, say, some law enforcement that might not be on the up and up? Well, as, as human beings, we are all flawed, right? And so you have different types of jobs that you do, whether it be you're an accountant, with you know, a CPA that's you know withholding money, whether it's your uh, you work in a convenience store and, you, and you're stealing money, that really comes down to the human element. We do have laws in place. There are laws. If you want to retrieve data that someone is not giving you consent, you obviously have to have a search warrant. You have to have a search warrant that you can go in now present that dating. You know, obviously you articulate why you know you have probable cause to believe that this has occurred. Now, if we talk about say facial recognition of say your neighbors getting caught up in a drug bust, I think that comes down to obviously investigation. Being able to investigate the event, being able to say, okay, I have this information that's available to me. I'm going to utilize everything I can to, you know, help one exonerate those and then obviously be able to say this person was involved in the crime. So, for example, say there's a large event at a race, a terrorist bomb that goes off that you have how many cameras in the area? Well, there's probably 300,000 because they're all people, right? They have their mobile device. So being able to use those as say, a witness or as a bystander and now quickly identify because you, this is the person that we believe is involved, identify that person by their face across all of these videos as all of these pictures that are taken in to actually now present that information to the public to identify them so that further you know, there's always another crime that has not occurred. I'm, I'm really passionate when we start talking about, because I always get really, you know, asked the questions about, you know, overreach and, and how can this be used to, you know, hurt the public. But quite honestly, think about your iOS device, or if you have an Android device, when you look at your images, they're all categorized and you have the people, their face, but now you have all of their pictures that they're involved in. All that's doing is making it obviously easier for you, but you start thinking about they're actually using biometric data to now group the information, which is the same as, say, a a law enforcement or, say, forensic company utilizes that technology. Well, in some cases, I mean, yes, I have to give Google permission to tag me in photos, for example. And sometimes Google is better with some people than other people. Google has a really hard time with my voice, for example. I don't know why. Sure. (laughs) But (laughs) I will be misidentified at home, at work, in a police lineup based on my voice if Google's doing the thinking. And I guess there are questions, not just about overreach, but how far you rely on something that may not be even 95% accurate. Oh, 100%. I agree with you. I don't want to dumb down, say, an investigation if I use that term. You know, you want to make sure that you you don't have one piece of evidence that is you're going to use as your smoking gun, whether it be a facial, uh, you know, whether it be identification of, of a facial. No, there has to be a lot more to it, whether it be a voice imprint. has to be a lot. That's too much that CSI on TV that, okay, you know what, we have this voice print. We know exactly who it is. 
Well, there's a lot more investigation that has to take place with identifying what that person there, you know, or was it just a mobile device? You can't just say that someone committed a crime because their mobile device is in the area. Somebody else could have had that. So we really have to take that at a different level. And that's what we try to build into, obviously, you know, our software as well as multi-levels of, you know, really putting not only the device there, but really was there communication occurring between the two individuals? You know, what was the communication? Did they identify each other by name? So really taking that approach to it rather than just saying, boom, they did it because of this individual or this one instance. Got it. Let's actually talk about that, because I feel like in the media, we are guilty of getting very hung up on things like there was the case a couple years back about the police were looking for Amazon Echo data in a murder case where there was already other data. There was data from the water. I think it was a murder in a hot tub. There was data from the water flow or cleanup. There was, I'm sure, other pieces of data we don't know about. But we really focused on this Amazon Echo thing. And I'm very curious how important is wearable data or smart device data in putting together a case? And I know this depends on the case, but just broadly is how do you think about that as a law enforcement officer? Yeah, it's just the same as finding a glove, right? Finding something at the scene that might have, um, you know, the victim or the suspect's blood on it. It's just another piece of evidence. So using that obviously collectively, you know, the example you brought up with the Amazon device and actually the person was, you know, let out of jail because of that. And it was just simply because Amazon, as you know, just like Google Home or any, it's recording all the time because it's waiting for its wakeboard. So if it's recording all the time, you're going to get some utterances that are going, you might get some background noise. Again, that's just be used as part of the investigation. When we talk about wearable, say watches, again, that's great information because if someone's wearing their watch and, you know, you have a story of the time of death was this time and this person was just in this certain area. But then when, say, the, the person found them, they said, hey, they were still alive. You know, their heart was still it was still beating and I found them in this location. But now you take that information, you're saying, well, the heart stopped actually 30 minutes prior to when you found them. And two, this individual, you know, based upon the latitude and longitude of the geodata, was three miles away. So again, does that mean that that person is involved in it? Of course not. But obviously, it just becomes another piece of evidence. Got it. I will say, I've never found a dead body. But if I did find a dead body, (laughs) I don't know how coherent I'd be about checking for heart rate. I'd be like, I don't know, maybe. I'm going to hope it never happens to me. Really, that's that's my plan. Likewise. Okay. So obviously, we're focused on apparently dead bodies and murder. But let's talk about Other crimes, because there are plenty of property crimes. And I'm very curious, is it even worth it getting a subpoena for this data? Is it useful? With getting and and obtaining um, proper legal paperwork, it does take, it is time consuming. So a lot of times when law enforcement, they're going to have to really build a case. You know, a standard, if we call it a petty theft, you know, you have someone who's shoplifting. You know, the information, say from Google, is really not going to be necessarily relevant. But the data that say on their mobile device could be very relevant, right? Um, the information that can be extracted from that can show location. You know, it can show maybe they've taken a picture of the uh, of the object before they stole that. But really, as if I'm going, if I'm going to go in and and take it to a level of I need to get a subpoena to for Google or for say Amazon for the information from Amazon. You know, it's going to be have to be not necessarily a big case, but one that you're going to say, okay, this information might tie them to several burglaries, right, or st- several car thefts. Okay, and then when you go to a judge for a warrant for this sort of thing, I'm assuming, do you need a warrant for this, or do you just email the company? 
Now, you will, because if you email the company, if you do not have one permission of the actual owner of the money, so that's something that people don't think about is really who owns the data. And it comes down to every terms and conditions. If you read, it states that you are the owner, which means that you have to either can consent to that. They cannot give consent to your data to law enforcement without, without a search warrant. Okay, so then you've got a warrant. When you're doing these warrants, I assume they're like time bounded based at like you don't get everything. You probably wouldn't want everything. Okay. And in a warrant, because all I do is watch cop shows, so I don't know how accurate they are. You have to have some sort of probable cause for that data. You're exactly right. Yeah. And so it's it's a high standard. It's not just a guess. Obviously, you have to state what the probable cause for that. And it, and it also, you're exactly right. It has to be, say, January 1 to January 2nd. And that's the information. Because obviously, if you're now collecting additional information, it becomes a wiretap, obviously, which is Title three. That's illegal, very illegal to do. So you have to have the information that only relates to your event and to the dates or, say, your scope. Got it. And then how aware are law enforcement officers? I mean, I feel like there's a wide range of of knowledge about using this sort of data. So I'm very curious, like, how up on technology are they? One of the things we've really tried to do at, at our company is educate, really, because once you have the education, you then, as, say, the law enforcement officer now can educate your prosecutors. You can then now educate the judges because, you know, you might, as a law enforcement officer, completely understand the data completely understand how this is really going to help your case. But then you go to, you know, the prosecutor and say, hey, this is what we need to do to get in front of a judge. They're like, no, 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 no. We already have enough information. So I think the law enforcement, say the front line, they understand the data exists, right? That the data is there and this is possibly going to help our case. Then they have to just kind of weigh, okay, how much time is this going to take, right? Do I have the training and experience or do I have to drive 50 miles or 100 miles to, you know, take this to, you know, a regional lab where they can do the examination? So there's a lot of things that they really have to weigh. Do I believe that they know that that data exists? Of course, we all have our own mobile devices. We, we all know how crazy the information is on our own personal device. So we know that obviously utilizing that for a case can be paramount. But again, it just comes down to a lot of things, you know, time and training. Yeah, just like everything. Okay. (laughs) And then before we go, I am very curiously, what connected wearables or devices do you have in your home? Oh, so um, I do not have any assistance. I utilize them, but I have lights. You know, I have lights. I have obviously smart TVs as well as like a thermostat. And wearables. Do you have a wearable? Yeah, Samsung. Samsung watch. I love it. Okay. Well, Lee, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 